Uh, if you are staying here with us, I'd invite you to go ahead and take a Bible out this morning. If you don't have one, there's one in front of you in the chair uh, located there. We're going to be in the book of 1 John. So kind of go to the end, turn back a few pages, and you're going to come to 1 John. And about two weeks ago, we began a series working through this book. It's going to take us close to July, if not into July. Uh, and I'm going to just going to start out probably this week, maybe one more, we'll see. Uh, we're just trying to get you to see what's going on. Um, so I'm going to ask some questions. You're going to hopefully feel free to, to give some feedback and answer those back. Um, right? and, and it's really just trying to help. We know reputation is good for us. A drill in our minds and in, in our hearts. Man, the context matters, the history matters, so we understand really how we view this writing in, in comparison in terms of all the overarching background things. So, who wrote this book? Thank you. Not just John, but John the Apostle. John, one of the disciples of Jesus. John, who was in the closest kind of knit group, right? Peter, James, and John, the three. John the Beloved. All right, this is not John... Uh, in any other relation to Jesus, but one of his disciples. This is the same John who wrote the Gospel of John. Yes, he also wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. How do you know this? What? No, he doesn't. Because they're called John. That's the same answer you gave last week, Noah. Thank you. All right. Because his writing style, because the way that he communicated was very similar. He used words like believe over faith and consistent literary features that take place from the Gospel of John and then continue to reign through and carry through into this book of his writing. It's one of the unique writings, I think, in the New Testament that doesn't tell you who wrote it. So it takes your thinking, right? What did, what did John do, roughly for a vocation, after Jesus ascends back to heaven? Thank you. He was a pastor. So who is he writing to? People he knows. People he cares about. Like any good pastor or shepherd or overseer would, he wants to see the work that's established in them continue. He wants to watch the gospel continue to take root. And so he's writing to encourage, to strengthen, so that they, right, his followers, the followers ultimately of Christ, will live and act and think in accordance with what the gospel calls them to all right, we know that there are three themes that we'll see woven through this book. Do we remember what they are? Maybe just one of them. Do you remember one of these themes? All right, and if you have to look back in your notes, that's not remembering. That's just looking back in your notes. All right, we're going to challenge you a little bit more here. True doctrine is one of them. Close, obedient, well, living. Okay, obedient, living. Last one. Fervent devotion. Yeah, you're close, right? So true doctrine, obedient living, and fervent devotion. So in other words, if we understand doctrine and theology and what God instructs and teaches us, that flushes its way out. It's not meant to just be head knowledge, right? This isn't just get your master's, get your PhD, and then just call it good, okay? But no, it's meant to actually work into everyday life, hence obedient living, and not just for a season, but for all of your life. Hence, fervent devotion. They're kind of building upon themselves. And these three themes will continue to weave and uh, unite themselves out throughout this entire writing. 
With that in mind, let's read 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 6 together. And this is God's Word. And it says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we seek his commandments. Whoever says that I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Let's pray and ask God's presence this morning. And that your spirit would accomplish truly only what your spirit can do, Lord. In your name, amen. If you remember last week, John had just worked through this whole comparison of light and darkness. Right, that Jesus is, he is the revealing light. And we know just some factual things about light, right? Light is both meant to expose things and also reveal things. And light is used as uh, an example of who God is and purity and truth all throughout the Old Testament. So it makes sense John will pull on this analogy, right? And he reveals that Jesus not only exposes our sin, but also then calls and reveals the way to follow him. See, Jesus is not a God who just exposes our brokenness and says, hey, good luck, hope you figure it out. Um, maybe go get a self-help book from, from Barnes and Nobles. I'm sure you'll work it out. But no, he says, look, here's where the brokenness is, but here's how you can be restored, for the follower of Christ, our lives are meant to reflect the light. Like our lives are meant for something. They're meant to point back to Christ. And John kind of here continues to build off of that thought. Throughout John's writing, he gives multiple lines of, of why he's writing. Right? As any good, again, pastor, overseer, shepherd would, and he has the sheep in mind. John does not write here because he's bored one day and just says, I'm going to blog. Who's going to read it? I'm going to tweet this out and see who follows me. But no, John writes out of a heart, a yearning, a desire for people. And so he gives purposes, right? If you remember back in chapter 1, verse 4, Paul or John said he was writing these things so that our joy or perhaps even your joy may be complete. So one of the reasons we know from the outset that John writes this instruction, this oversight, this insight is so that our joy, meaning the follower of Christ's joy, would be complete. Now in verse 1 of chapter 2, he tells us, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. He's writing these things so that we and those reading and listening would not sin. I think it could be implied that, that John may make a connection here between our joy being complete and a life that is not rooted in sin. They likely are going to go together. Right? Ultimately, that a life that is settled, established, and rooted in Christ is the best way to live on planet Earth. That's John and what he's trying to establish within us. That, that the, the living under 
Right? The authority and the rule and the reign of Jesus Christ is the best possible way to live. If we were to survey our culture of what it means to be Christian, so in other words, what we might identify as what it means to live this way or to be this way, we would get a myriad of responses. Right? So John is essentially is trying to establish this is what it means to live right, as a follower of Jesus. In modern context, the words that we would use is to be a Christian. This is what it means. Now, you should know that the word and the label Christian is totally taken in all different contexts and all different understandings and multiple interpretations. A 2016 survey by Pew Research to American Christians right, asked them, what does it mean to be a Christian? Like, what does that mean? Nine out of ten said, believing in God. Okay, that's a great, good start. Okay. 15% said to, that to be a Christian was to follow some form, some form of the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Now, you can't tell me where that is in the Bible because it's not in the Bible, right? We have kind of comparisons to that, love your neighbor as yourself, right? But, but the, the phrase, do unto others, that's not in the Bible. But we have supposed uh, people claiming Christ that are now saying, look, I think to be a Christian, yeah, it means to follow the golden rule. 13% said it was a trust or belief in God. Only 11% of those surveyed, again, identifying as American Christians, say salvation is through Jesus. More than half of these highly religious, as they self-identified, included things like praying regularly, was a mark of a Christian, reading the Bible, attending religious services, um, committing to spend time with family and working to help the poor and needy. Now, I may not argue that those things are, are bad necessarily, but all of those things listed are not what makes you or I Christian. What is clear, I think, is that we collectively are not sure anymore what it means to be Christian. I would argue that politics has hijacked the word evangelical and taken that, and media has spun that to every single different uh, definition they want it to be established, so that even the word evangelical in some brings about kind of some cringing. Um, But yet, in its pure form, evangelical is a good thing. It's it's those that identify under Christ and want to, to make his name known. We live in a confusing culture. We live in a confusing church culture as well. Maybe being a Christian is, right, it's about attending a worship service. Maybe it is believing that God exists. Maybe it's being nice or helping people, reading the Bible or whatever religious book that you might choose. Maybe it has to do with how we vote, where we live, or what we see as important in life. The problem is, if all those things are true, that means some of them are not true by definition. What is it then that makes a Christian a Christian? Is it universalist openness? Or is there an exact definition? See, I think in one sense, John is writing here to give clarity as, as what it means to be a Christian. And I would say what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. So what does it mean to be a Christian? We hear this term first reference in Acts 
11.26. It says, For a whole year they, meaning Paul and Barnabas, met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. These were people following after the way. It calls it that, right? The way. The way of what or who? Of Jesus. These were individuals who were willing to commit themselves to following after both the teaching and the example of Christ. Theologian Charles Hodge says this, A Christian is one who recognizes Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, as God manifested in the flesh, loving us and dying for our redemption, and who is so affected by a sense of the love of this incarnate God as to be constrained to make the will of Christ, the rule of his obedience, and the glory of Christ, the great end for which he lives. Is that wordy? A little bit. So what do we do with that, if he's right? In other words, how do we respond? I believe that a a person who is declaring themselves to be a Christian is so affected by a sense of love for this incarnate God, Jesus, that their life is now lived in a manner that seeks to make the will of Christ the way of their lives and seeks to give glory to Christ as a primary means of the goal of their lives. Right, so someone who's authentically trusting Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And that word authentic is very important. It's not, a, it's not a parental faith. It's not a, a family lineage. Well, we always went to church. I was baptized when I was newborn, so therefore I must be a Christian. The problem is the scriptures don't teach that. Scriptures teach that to be a Christian is to be settled, that the greatest gain in all of life is having Christ. And the greatest goal of all of our lives is the glory of Christ. Recognizing that that came through the sacrifice and grace of Christ for our sins. In other words, perhaps the Protestant Reformation writers were right. That salvation comes through faith alone and Christ alone by grace alone. Now, if you know anything about church history, the Protestant Reformation, the breaking out of the Catholic Church, the returning to Scripture, the five solas are really the kind of these um, all-encompassing phrases to unite people around what is the meat and those are three of the five that were saved by faith alone and christ alone by grace alone that it's scripture alone that is ultimate authority right not me scripture like that's why i want you to read your bibles to, to trust that before you trust me make sure that what i'm saying is accurate too faith alone christ alone grace alone scripture alone Right? And that we live for God's glory alone. This is important. Because it means that, that we have a common or same understanding of what it means to be a Christian. It's important that we as a church family identify what it means to be a Christian. If that's what we're self-identifying as, if that's what we're willing to say to somebody else, well, we need to make sure that we as a church family all mean the same thing. And that needs to be rooted in the Scriptures. I think this is what John wants. He wants those listening, he would want us, I believe, to understand what exactly it means to follow after Jesus. Because here's what I know. 
that I can go to a bookstore or go online or turn on the TV and find lots of people who identify as Christians in their teaching. And they and I would disagree a lot on what we're about, about the teach and preach. Um, it's, it's fascinating to think about and to watch, to understand and to look at. But what I know is we cannot always all be right because we don't all teach the same thing. Some teach Christ alone. Others teach that you need to go to church, you need to be baptized. Some teach various things, but what I know is all those things can't be right. There can't be multiple ways to get to heaven. That scripture alone has the keys for what that is, and John here is trying to encourage us in that. Because the John's statements are true, his previous statements are true, then they indeed have direct application to our lives. All right, so John is writing so that in the mix of following Christ, sin would not exist. So again, John began with light and darkness. Now he's working out into the practical. Again, so what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, now we're starting to infer some practical things here. To be a Christian is not only to trust in Christ as our Lord and Savior, to live for the glory of God in all that we do, but then practically working out in everyday life to be a Christian is to not allow sin to be mixed in with how we live our lives. Why? Because if our greatest gain is Christ, then our greatest goal is pursuing Christ, then living in pursuit of knowing and growing in Christ and making his glory known must be a central part of what we do. And if all those things are true, sin cannot be part of that routine. If we've placed our lives in Christ, we've been justified by faith, our sin is forgiven, our salvation is secure, then as partners in the gospel, we cannot claim sin as part of the normalcy of who we are. So I think for John, there's a direct connection and correlation between knowing Christ, having salvation, and keeping his commands. Like those things are to go hand in hand. All right, 1 John 2, 3 through 6, we read it earlier, says this, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. And by this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walks. So how does someone know they're saved? Like this should be a question that, that if you're here today that you have to think through. How does someone know they're saved? Like, I mean, we don't get a picture ID that says, right, Christian, saved, salvation, keeping our wallet. And just before we take our last breath, we take it out one more time so the coroner sees it. Like, I was saved. How does someone know that, that they're united in Christ? Well, part of it is evidence to the keeping of his commands, according to John. This is not just action. It's not just going through the routines. Honestly, it's not coming to church on a Sunday morning. But it's a heart change. See, a desire to keep his commands. By this it says that we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So to be a Christian is to look at him, Jesus, and to see Jesus and to understand who Jesus is and then to want to walk and live just as he did. 
to wrestle with, like, how does that apply today, 2019, when Jesus says this? How does it look, right? If I look at Jesus' life, well, um, if I read Matthew's gospel, which I'm currently doing just in my own, uh, just quiet time, it, it seems like he goes and he heals and he does work, and then he begins to preach. He shows compassion and grace and mercy, and then he begins to speak. That caused me to reflect on my own life. I, mean, I can easily preach. That's easy for me. But then what about my actions? What about the things that I'm, I'm showing to other people? Do they point to Jesus? To be in Christ is to look at him and to ask ourselves, are we walking as he walked? Right? We do this with other people in our lives. Meaning we look up to other people all the time, right? Parents, celebrities, athletes, politicians, people who have defied the odds, these inspirational stories. We look at them and say, man, if I could just do that. And that's even like tangible, right? So, uh, Mike, throw that slide up for me. I don't know if you can read this or not. But this is 2018. This is just some survey that was done. The world's most admired people. Topping the men's, Bill Gates. Topping the women's, Angelina Jolie. Then you got Barack. Number three, Jackie Chan. Number six, Vladimir Putin. Elon Musk is on there. Pope Francis, Donald Trump. Madonna, T. Swift, right? It's fascinating. This doesn't represent everybody in the world and their opinions, but this is admired. Admired people. We, I believe, have within us an existence and a yearning to want to follow. Leadership is good. Right? We can watch a GoPro video and think, man, I, I want to do that. Like, I want to jump out of that airplane. Right? Or not, right? <laughs> or I want to live that extreme. Like, I want to have that fascinating existence of life. We look at others and we, we see these, again, these defying stories of, of people that come from nothing and do fantastic things or, or those perhaps born with disability and figure out how to overcome those things. And they are inspirational. They motivate us. They move within us. They strike at a heart level. And I think that's because we're hardwired that way. And we see these things and we watch them and they seem to stoke a flame within us that yearns to be greater and for greater things. And that's not bad but it falls drastically short of what we could look after, and we could strive for, and we could yearn after. See, we should caution ourselves that we're not called to simply emulate those around us. Remember what John said? Whoever abides in Christ ought to walk in the same way he walked. Do you remember, for a while, the, the fad or marketing, I think just a great marketing slogan, but I think it has some good intentions of WWJD. There were wristbands and shirts, and what would Jesus do? Right? I'm sure they got trademarked, and I'm sure those people made a good amount of money off it, but I, I want to think that maybe their intentions were good from the beginning. It was just really trying to ask the practical question of, in your life, in this moment, as you're driving down, and as you get cut off, and your hands on the steering wheel, and you've got a, a bracelet that says WWJ, maybe just for a moment you think, what would Jesus do right now? Beep, yell, gesture, hit the brakes, think maybe that person's going to the hospital to try to catch someone who's dying. 
Like just for a moment and maybe have compassion before we have rage and anger. I think it was well-intentioned. It really is thought of, I think, perhaps from 1 John. Whoever abides in Christ ought to walk in the same way he walked. See, for the Christian, life is to reflect the life of Christ. Christ's name is in the word Christian. We're meant to reflect him. And not just reflect, but also to listen to him, to follow him, and to be obedient to him. Right? John said, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Part of evidence that you are authentically saved is that you're keeping Christ's commands. A trust in him, an assent that Jesus is who you're following. Why? Because he really is the way and the truth and the life and the way of salvation that he declares himself to be. The fact John says those things in verse 2, he said, he is a propitiation for our sins and not our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. Meaning that he is a sacrifice that bears God's wrath and turns it into favor. That's what he did on the cross. It does not mean that his salvation is given to the whole world. No, not everyone will be in heaven one day. It's conditional. It's available to everyone. Like the salvation of Christ is available, but is applicable to those who will trust in him. How do we know that? Because Jesus told us that in John 5. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. See, before you think that God's love or salvation is unconditional, it's very conditional. It's conditioned upon being in salvation in Christ alone. The one who claims Christ is not left to just a subjective understanding of what it means to be a follower. Scripture is so helpful in laying out exactly what it looks like and what it means to follow Jesus. And I think actually most of us like that. If you're like me, you like, at least I do, I I don't like gray areas. I kind of like knowing what the bounds are. This is right, this is wrong, this is good, this is bad. I'm not saying I'm always good at staying within those those parameters. I like change. I like to buck against things. This is how I'm wired. I think God can use those things, hopefully, by his grace. But what does it mean to follow Christ? Scripture is very clear. It's eternally helpful. Right? Peter in Acts 2 says this, And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, any, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means to repent, right? You don't have to be baptized, be saved, but baptism is an evidence that you have repented, you have trusted in Christ. That's why Peter wants these people to be baptized. Look, let's go. Put a little backing behind this. Show other people that you've been given over to the Lord. For what? For the forgiveness of your sins. Repentance is part of coming to Jesus. And Paul says in Romans 10, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. 
To be a Christian is to confess our mouths, believe in our heart. In other words, the chasm that exists, that is huge at times between our head and our heart, when we come to salvation, those things line up. We are stirred to an understanding of the hope of the gospel, and that stirs within us, right? Confession and repentance that stirs into our mind that we're a new creation, and God takes and makes all things new. Within salvation in Christ, there is submission, meaning there is a recognizing of the glory of God and the hope of forgiveness that is fully found in Jesus Christ. It's submitting to God that we don't know what's best and we can't save ourselves. Then, after that, it's a life that's lived out for the glory of God being made known to our family and our neighbors and our coworkers and our community in the world. It's the primary way that our lives, if you're a follower of Christ, the primary way that our lives are marked with the gospel and the call to follow Christ is that you have been changed, that you have been made new, that you see Jesus as good and his words as life-giving, that you see Jesus' commands as helpful and even beautiful, because it is his desire to bring fullness to life. Look, that only comes from a heart that's changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. I know I've said this before, and I have to keep reminding you, at least remind myself, my biggest fear as a pastor, as a preacher, is that there are those who sit for days, weeks, years, and decades in good churches that think they know Jesus, that think they're saved because they said a prayer one day, but they're not. And some of that I say to give some concern to you, like for you to introspectively evaluate your life. Because if you claim Christ today, then it says that your life ought to reflect him. That your life's greatest endeavor and goal is to understand Jesus more and more and to live for his glory. That is the greatest use of your time and your energy. It is the best way to live. And as God reveals these things, and he reveals that desire for him, and he reveals your sin, and if he reveals your brokenness, It is His grace that He does that. That when we struggle, we stumble, we fall, God graciously reveals this to us. He forgives us, He stands us up, and He welcomes us again, and then continues on with us. That is God's grace. Even right now, if God is convicting you, that is His grace. That He's not saying, all right, you know best, go ahead. Work it out. Figure it out. Good luck. Because I'm pretty sure at the end of my life, right, no one has to give an account to me. I can go to hospitals and visit with people who dine. They don't have to give an account to me. But one day, my life, your life, will give an account to the Lord. In the passage that says, you know, there's some who will say, Father, I did this, I did this, and you're going to He'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. That should scare us a little bit. That should make us nervous. And not nervous that you question your salvation, 
but nervous in that you evaluate your relationship with Jesus to make sure it is authentic and it is real and it is striving to grow and mature in salvation and you live for God's glory in obedience to how he calls you. My little children, I write these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, an advocate who takes up our cause and presents it before God the Father. If we believe Scripture is true, then it is a conviction of sin that when we struggle and stumble and fall, when that takes place, we feel like we're at our lowest. We have got to remind ourselves that God is faithful to forgive those things. If we believe that, that, that we're convicted, right, that, that sin is God's hand in our lives, well, what's that based on? God's Word. So we, we, we seem to have some sense of that God's Word matters if it convicts us. Then we have to also take hope in the gospel that says when we confess and repent, God is faithful to forgive. He did not walk away, but rather continues to work in your life and in my life, even as we struggle. Church, listen, when we're in Christ, we're changed. We're changed. We are a new creation. We're His. I don't believe the Scriptures teaches or, or reveals anywhere that you can lose your salvation when you're in Christ. I think when we're his, man, we are his sheep. We are in his pasture. I think the key to that whole scenario is authentic faith. And when we are authentically, we have authentically trusted in Christ, he's our Lord and Savior, and we are that new creation. And then we have work to do. Meaning, we have work to then be living and breathing representations of Jesus here and now. Listen, God wants to use you. On one hand, that terrifies me. Because I know me. You don't know me. I know me. I know my brokenness, my faults, my failures, my struggles. But God, in His grace wants to use us in spite of those things. He actually probably wants to work through those things. Because we're living and breathing representations of Jesus here and now. This ought to cause us to examine our lives, to ask ourselves, how are we doing at representing Jesus right now? We ought to examine our hearts, our minds, our actions what we really do consent as authority, is, is Jesus really given authority in our lives, or is it just this kind of simple add-on? And according to John, one way this takes place is through how we live our lives. Do we walk as he walked? Meaning, how do we mirror Jesus? In faith, in love, in piety, in obedience, in self-sacrifice? How do we mirror Jesus? Like, you can look at the Gospels. You are smart people that can read the Bible and look at the Gospel and look at Jesus' life and say, that's not present in my life. Like, Jesus went and healed people with diseases that nobody wanted to be around. That stirs only out of compassion. Right? Jesus was human, 
fully and God fully, and how that fully works, we will never understand until glory one day. We're going to guess that, that Jesus could feel pain, right? Yeah, he's willing to go to hard places. And so when we read about Jesus and what he's willing to do, just read the Gospels, it ought to cause you to ask yourself, does my life, am I willing to do that? If, if God leads me, am I willing to go and to represent him that way? By the way, you know that the pattern of Jesus' life, right, it led to suffering. So are you willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel? Am I willing to suffer for the sake of Christ? I don't know what that practically means, but I know that we're guaranteed to suffer. Right? We sang a song earlier that said, if we should suffer. And I thought, well, we could probably should change that line to say when we suffer, because it's going to happen. It may not be by losing your life, but there is suffering with knowing Christ. Well, how do we know that? Because if we walk as he walked, then that's what his life led to, didn't it? But it also should give greater assurance that when we walk as Christ walked, that we are eternally secure in him. Look, the goal for the Christian, if that's what you declare you are today, you trust in Christ authentically, Lord and Savior of your life. The goal is not behavior modification. That's not the goal. Change your behavior. The goal is head and heart connection and conviction rooted in the gospel that then moves into the everyday parts of life. The goal is head and heart connection and conviction rooted in the gospel, that then moves to the everyday part of life. Meaning, I read this, and when it gives me a command, I actually have to sit there and wrestle with it and struggle with it and feel conviction, perhaps, even, of it, that my life doesn't exemplify Christ. And now that, you know what that starts to do? It goes from this head level to now this heart level. And then it begins to work out with conviction that, this is what it calls me to do to live like Christ. I feel convicted that my life needs to have more of that. Like my life needs to have more of Jesus. My life needs to show more of Jesus. And then that begins to work itself into everyday living. Look, the best way to do all of this begins with simply knowing Jesus. To know what he says. So what is Paul, or what's John saying here again? What's one way that we know that we have fellowship? Right, that we would live what? We have come to know him if we do what? Keep his commandments. Guys, it's really hard to keep his commandments if you don't know them. I can get frustrated with my kids at not doing something, but if I never told them to do it, like we get irritated all the time. Like our kids ever, we, got, we call them family responsibilities. They're not chores. Like they're not added burdens for you to live in my house. They're called being responsible because you live in our house and you make a mess too. Right? And, and there's times where Kim and I are like, I, I don't even think they did anything. Like they were up there for 30 minutes and the vacuum ran the whole time, but I'm not sure if anything was accomplished. But to some extent, the onus is on us, Right? If we didn't teach them, if we didn't show them correctly the process and then maybe even repeat that teaching a couple times, 
the onus to some extent is on us. Because perhaps the instruction was not fully comprehended in their lives. Right? It's, it's not just that uh, they've dropped the ball or were just choosing to be negligent. Perhaps they didn't know what to do. The best way to follow Jesus, to know him, and to know what he says, and to be obedient to his commands, is to know what his commands actually are. And how is that accomplished? Sure, you can come on a Sunday morning. Right? We teach you books of the Bible here, so you're going to get broad, big-picture commands of Jesus. But the best way to know is, is to read your Bible, to think about it, to seek to understand it, and then to apply it to carve out that time in your schedule that allows for that. So I'm just trying to help you with this. So on the back table, right where um, the offering basket is there, is just a reading program. It's a reading guide. A five-day Bible reading guide. Hoping that the weekends are not just you take a nap, right, and just, but you actually kind of maybe interact deeper with it. You think about it a little bit more. You journal. I don't know. Right? They're on the table in the back. Week one, it gives a date, but you can start tomorrow. Don't worry about, don't worry about January. Just write the date on when you, when you start. And you, and you open up the very first column, week one. Okay, there's five days there, five circles. So tomorrow, Genesis 1 and 2, Psalm 19, Mark 1. Week two, Genesis 3 and 5. Or sorry, yeah, day two. Genesis 3 and 5, Mark 2. Day three, Genesis 6 and 8, Psalm 104, Mark 3. It just works it through. It's a guide. Most of us, when left to like just flippancy, we don't do well. I can go to the gym, and I can easily tear up an hour of my life and talk to a lot of people and barely accomplish anything. It's true. And the same thing can happen when we read the Bible. Like, we can do it. We can just kind of work through it. But at the end of the day, I don't know if we wrestled with it at all. I know for me, I have to write something down. Even if it's just one of the verses that, that just kind of that stirs in my mind a little bit deeper. I just I honestly just write the verse out verbatim. I do very little. I just, maybe I ask one question that I do, I'm going to think about after that. I don't do a ton of writing. I'm just not that, that wired that way. But I know that even that writing out helps me interact with it. Why not start this week or next week? March 1st is coming up. March, right? That, that's your goal. You'll start in March, the end of this week. Next Monday, it's five days. These are going to be in the back for the next few weeks. Just grab them. Take it home. Put it right in your Bible. Write it out. Have questions. Have thoughts. Seek out answers. Seek to apply the Scriptures. This is imperative for us as Christians, if that's how we identify ourselves. To know Jesus, and to walk as he walks. I want to see us, I would love, this is my heart's desire, to collectively see us living, loving, and understanding the fullness of Christ and his glory in all parts of our lives. And you may say that sounds normal, but that's not every, I promise you, that is not every pastor's agenda. They want maybe bigger facilities or programs or more attendance or better giving. Like that, those things are great. But if we're not collectively pursuing Christ together, those things are, are useless. It's a waste of time, money, and energy. Being completely fulfilled in Christ is the goal of us. 
fully seated in the gospel. And that only comes as we understand and apply Jesus more and more into your lives. You can only trust John's words that says, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. You can trust that to be true when you understand his commands. Read the Bible. By the way, this expectation of reading the Bible is nothing beyond elementary. Meaning for the Christian, it's elementary. It's, it's base level that we read the Bible. This is not master's level, right, doctorate level living. This is really elementary to read God's word. To keep his commands and to reflect Jesus. Let's pray. God, we recognize that uh, in our brokenness, in our frailty, that we don't do this well. And so we need you. We pray that you would stir in us uh, a really a yearning for your word, a desire to see uh, it working, weaving itself within our lives so that we can truly live for your glory, Lord. Father, I pray that we would do what we have to do to carve out the time to get in your word. And not just so we can say that we could do it, so that we can better understand you, Lord. To better understand what it means to follow after you. To better understand your commands, God. Would your spirit give us the guidance, the strength, and the endurance to do so. In your name, amen.